first you don't succeed, try, try again. You learned this from great track teacher Chisma. No, from Mickey Mouse. Who? Mickey Mouse. Mickey Mouse is this great Eggman teacher. Yeah, sort of. Come inside. Ignore the strange stickiness of the carpet beneath your feet. Find the right seat, the one without the missing arm and the exposed springs. Pull the candy bar out of your inside coat pocket. Look at the color swirl as the canned music plays. Wait for the lights to go down. Listen for the telltale clacking of film being pulled through the gate. Relax. Watch. Because we all feel better, better in the dark. Sun is coming through the window now. Oh Lord, what a heavenly light! Happy birthday to ya! Happy birthday to ya! Happy birthday! Happy birthday to ya! You see this podcast? It makes five thousand dollars a night. Yeah, right. You see this podcast? Okay, it makes five dollars a night. You know, we shine like gold when we're on the air. People have told me that they said that, why do you even bother singing on there? And I said, as long as you keep dissing my singing, I'm going to keep on doing it. So right. It's called negative reinforcement, ladies exactly. and gentlemen. Exactly. But the song is most appropriate for this episode because we're paying tribute to a favorite actor of both Tom and myself. Do we have the right to call him a great, great man? I'd call him a great, great man. So he's a great, great man. Mr. Dennis Quaid, ladies and gentlemen. But first, of course, we should say that I'm Tom DJ. And I'm Derek Ferguson. And this, of course, is Better in the Dark. And in fact, I think we're recording this either on his birthday or really four days away from his birthday. Okay. In which he was born in 1954. Derek and I have been fans for many, many years, and we decided yeah. to devote this hour to a celebration. Yeah, one night I think we just got on the Dennis mm-hmm. Quaid jag. Yeah. We started talking about a bunch of whole Dennis Quaid movies that both you and I enjoyed. Because we were always intending this year to devote some episodes specifically to actors. To various actors that mm-hmm. we like. We said, well, why not start with Mr. With Dennis Mr. Quaid? Quaid. Yeah. yeah. Before we begin with the Dennis Quaid Love Fest, mm-hmm. we do have some email. Actually, one email. Again? Again, yeah. They keep coming. Guys, thank you so much for letting your voices be heard. And if you want to be in this segment, just give us a little drop of the line at better in the dark that's better the letter and the dark at gmail.com and this is from david anderson and it specifically references the last review special where you if you remember counseled people to watch the transformers only while drunk okay okay so dave anderson writes has a transformer fan I have to say the live-action version is a movie that leaves me torn. I certainly liked it better than Derek did, but there were problems that even Transformer geeks had with the film. It may be that I'm a little younger than you guys, but Transformers was a huge part of my childhood. Plus, I don't think Derek was paying attention. Bumblebee was a Camaro, not a Mustang. I'll be honest with you, I wasn't paying that much attention. However, there are problems. Bay largely ignored the rich tapestry of Transformers history in making the movie. In the original incarnation, Transformers came to Earth to generate energy so they could survive. Simple, but more relatable than the magic box, which was stupid. Also, and you touched on this, the robots all looked the same. 
This is a big problem for TF fans. Transformers have a fan base because the characters all looked and acted different. The movie made them fairly generic. Also, the whole thing with John Turturro's character, the whole Sector 7 thing, felt like it was ripped out of Independence Day. That and the computer nerds breaking the code were both crammed at the movie for no apparent reason, other than Bay is a crappy storyteller. Mm. I have to say, seeing giant robots beat the crap out of each other was awesome, but the film could have been so much more. David. First of all, David, let me say, and let me apologize to all Transformers fans, because you know something? I crapped all over your movie. Transformers is not from my generation. However, Speed Racer is from my generation, so I can relate. And if I see that, have you seen that trailer? Yes, I have. Holy shit. Everything's primary colors and just... I got a feeling that once you come out of the seat after mm-hmm. seeing it, your eyes are going to be sore. Yeah. Because even watching the trailer, the colors are like... They were so... like, the thing that was striking was how the colors were just like popping out of the screen almost. Yeah. But that's another thing. Getting back to you, Dave. Everybody has their own thing that they like from their own generation. I should respect the fact that you Transformer fans, you got this love for it. Which again, I don't understand, but hey... To each his own. As far as the movie go, a lot of things you said, I agree with it. And the John Turturro thing. As a matter of fact, that whole scene inside the base up mm-hmm. under the dam seemed like from Independence Day. But thank you for your email. Once Uh-oh. again, I am struck by the level of intelligence and reasonableness of our audience. Well, that's because we're reasonable and intelligent. That's right. So like attracts like. There you go. Uh, I'm not going to read this one out, but we also got a little email from Dave Devanch, which confirms... That sometime in the very near future, we will be doing a crossover with the Geek Savants. And uh, as we talked about in the episode you're going to be hearing before this one, if you have not heard the Geek Savants podcast, you really should. Because it's really rude and it's really crude, but it's also a hilarious laugh and a Yeah, you may want to start listening to some of those episodes to get yourself warmed Mm -hmm. up. So you get used to it. So you'll be familiar with them and their voices and and their style of doing things. So that's in the works upcoming. And hopefully, if this works out, we're going to do a couple other crossover episodes. Uh, True. I know that we've talked to Parker at Bend the Media, who has not put out a new episode anytime soon, so you what's know, going you, on, Parker? Which I noticed today, yeah, I was going to drop you an email, Parker, and ask you what happened, because I haven't seen or heard anything from you lately. He actually calls me every once in a while. You know, I haven't heard from him by phone either. But hopefully when he listens to this, he'll email us or give me a call. And we're also going to hopefully do something with our friends Eric and Kelly at uh, Podcrawlers as well. Yeah. That's not what we're here to talk about. A lot about of goodness today. coming up for you. We folks. hope A lot so. of goodness. We're here to talk about the great, great man, Mr. Dennis Quaid. Okie dokie. Should I give him the, the biography before we get into the well, movies? I would hope, certainly hope okay. so. Born April 9th, 1954 to Juanita Bonnie Nita, a real estate agent, and William Rudy Quaid, an electrician. Of course, the younger brother of another great, great man, mm-hmm. Mr. Randy Quaid. Randy Quaid, absolutely. Raised in Houston, Texas, attended the University of Houston under drama coach Cecil Pickett. Okay. After his brother, Randy Quaid, was nominated for an Academy Award for his role in The Last Detail, Dennis dropped out of the University of Houston before graduating and moving to Los Angeles to pursue his own acting career. His first film was Breaking Away, which Mm -hmm. you and I have discussed, and earned good reviews for his role in The Right Stuff, which I think we're going to be discussing later today. Yeah. Known for his famous grin, Quaid has appeared in both comedic and dramatic roles. Quaid starring roles in the films Enemy Mine and Inner Space. He also achieved acclaim for his portrayal of Jerry Lee Lewis in Great Balls of Fire. Hmm, two more films I think are going to be talked about at a great length. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Quaid's career lost some steam in the early 90s after he fought and kicked a cocaine addiction. Who in Hollywood didn't yeah. fight a cocaine addiction? He continued <laughs> to garner positive reviews in a variety of films, however, such as Wyatt Earp. Some of Quaid's most recent film credits include Far From Heaven. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> in Good Company, The Day After Tomorrow. He's sitting here doing the Mr. Burns you're thing. You ought to see him, folks. He's doing the most recent <laughs> vantage point. <laughs> he is a practicing Christian. Perhaps his most famous relationship was, of course, his long marriage to Meg Ryan. Meg Ryan, yeah. who uh, uh, I can never stand. The cute little wiggly nose mm-hmm. thing got to be a little yeah. played out after mm-hmm. the 20,000th time. Well, I think she's been married like, like four or five times here, according to this. Wow. He was married to, and here's a name that we've evoked in the past, P.J. Souls for a while. From 1978 to 1985, then, of course, Meg Ryan from 91 to 2001. And was engaged to actress Leah Thompson. Hmm. Got around. <laughs> In more ways than one. Yeah. Because you had a list somewhere you wanted to show me of the top five grossing Dennis Quaid films. And they were all different genres. I couldn't find it. I looked for it. I wrote it down. My mistake was I got mm-hmm. like these yellow notepads. I wrote it down right. and I couldn't find it. But they was all different genres. But what I wanted to point out is that Dennis Quaid is one of these actors that always seems to be consistently working. Right. Hardly six months go by where you don't have a Dennis Quaid movie. Where well, be check a cop- out these films that are in the pipeline right now. These are films that are going to be coming out. I know he's going to be in G.I. Joe. Yeah. Smart people. Mm-hmm. This is all this year. We already saw Vantage Point came out last month. Right. Smart people. Terra, which is apparently a cartoon. He does voice talent for it. Mm-hmm. The Express, The Horseman, and Shame on You. Okay. And yes, you're right. Next year, we'll see him in G.I. Joe. Yeah. This guy has been, for the past 20 years, he's been one of the most mm-hmm. consistently working actors in Hollywood. You have better actors. He's going to be playing Hawk. Hawk, yeah. Can't think of a better role. Mm-hmm. Now, you have actors who are arguably better who appear in lesser movies, but I can't think of another actor in Hollywood. I guess who's playing Destro, man? Oh, Christopher Eccleston. Oh, really? The cast keeps growing. And Sienna Miller. You remember Sienna Miller? Yeah, sure, I remember Sienna As Miller. The As she's playing the Baroness? She's playing the Baroness. Arnold Vuslu. I know Marlon Wayans is going to yes, be in this one, Yes, he's playing Ripcord. Rachel Nichols plays Scarlet. Andrew Vuslu. You remember who Andrew Vuslu is? Yeah, the mummy. The mummy, and also is the guy that replaced Liam Neeson in the Darkman sequel. In the Darkman sequel. He's playing Zartan. Ray Park is in it, I think. Yes, uh, Ray Park is playing Snake Eyes. We might as well run through yeah. the cast real quick <laughs> since we're doing it anyway. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is playing Cobra Commander. Mm-hmm. Channing Tatum is playing Duke. Who else we got? Adewale, Ikonoye. Don't even try it. Agabaje. But I know who he is. Yes, as oh. Heavy Duty. Yeah, he was from Lost. was this priest that right. got lost on the island. But I know who he is. He's a good actor. Well, of course, it's being directed by Stephen Summers, which is a bad sign for me because Stephen Summers, I don't like him. I like him better than Michael Bay. Point take, but, you know, like okay, him. The Mummy, probably, I don't know if you liked it or not, I, 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 I love, didn't care I for it. I love The Mummy. I didn't I care for The Mummy 2, and I know you hated as much as I did Van Helsing. Well, Van Helsing was terrible. But the baby Jesus cried when Van you know, Helsing was released. But I did like The Mummy a lot. I love The Mummy. I kind of like The Mummy 2, but Van Helsing, I think this is going to turn out a lot better under yeah. him than it would if Bay got his hands on it. Getting back to the man of the hour. Okay. So we're going to do this potpourri style? Yeah. So we each chose three of our favorite Dennis Quaid films, mm-hmm. and we're going to talk about them, and hopefully you guys will check them out. Movies that we think that will give you a good idea of the range of his acting ability and how many genres he's straddled. I'm going to read you some of these titles. 
I'm just taking this at random. Yeah. I'm taking a section of his life at random mm-hmm. to give you an idea of the vast number of genres he was in. Undercover Blues, which was a comedy, Flesh and Bone, which was a thriller. Uh, Century of Cinema, which was a documentary. Wyatt Earp, Western. A Western. Something to talk about. Romantic comedy with Julia Roberts. There you go. Dragonheart, fantasy. Fantasy. Gang related. I guess urban crime drama. Mm-hmm. Switchback, another thriller. The Parent Trap, the remake of the uh, Disney comedy. On Any Given Sunday, which is a film that you absolutely despise. Sports and I can't movie. stand either. Interspace, another Interspace. Frequency, which is another film we'll be talking about shortly. DOA. It's a thriller. Yes, it is a thriller, but that doesn't. We're just American Dreams, a satire. This guy can do everything. Anything you want him to do, he does it. And he does it very well, actually. Oh, I agree with you, of course, because we wouldn't be doing this show if it wasn't for that. You want to start? Uh, you can go first this time. Okay. I'm going to go... Sit in the back of the bus. Chronologically. <laughs> go ahead. Okay. Go ahead. I'm going to go chronologically with mine, and we're going to start with a film from 1983 called Tough Enough. This was probably one of his last films that he made before he had the big break of the right stuff, which I think you and I both agree yeah. was his breakout role. It played in the grindhouses around the country. This is a football movie, right? No, it's no? a movie. He plays a aspiring country western singer. He's married. He has a, a small child. He is strapped for cash because he can't get people to pay him to write songs. The problem most creative artists. Yes. However, he has a talent for, how, there's no other delicate way of putting it, beating people up. Through a comedy of errors, he ends up being discovered by Struther Martin, who plays the sponsor of the Tough Man competition. Strother Martin takes him under his wing and starts marketing him as the country western gladiator. And he starts doing these Tough Man competitions. Mm-hmm. He's very good at it, and he's very successful at it. After that, it ends up following the usual sports movie formula, formula where he builds his way up to, of course, a grand confrontation at the National Tough Man Championships in Detroit, Michigan. Mm-hmm. There's some really interesting things about this film, one of which is he wrote and sang all his own songs. Really? Which is something that is going to pay him good instead in the, the next film I'm going to talk about. Mm-hmm. But doesn't he have his own rock band? Or he does, yes. He and Randy plays with a band called The Sharks. Okay, yeah. No, I heard somewhere that he was touring yeah. with a band. Multi-talented. Multi-talented person. These songs are really, really good. They're obviously country western songs. Mm-hmm. The traditional kind, not the kind of new country, Travis Tritt, Randy Travis sort of thing. Right. These were like legitimate, fun. There's like one scene in particular that stands out in my mind where his son is having problems falling asleep. So mm-hmm. he does this goofy ass song about the jungle, about the monkey does this sort of noise and the lion does this noise. Mm-hmm. And he does all the voices, does all the faces and everything. And you believe this family in that moment. Okay. This little family. And there are a lot of other, like, interesting... I mentioned Strother Martin. Pam Greer has a role as the wife of his best friend on oh, the circuit. Oh, well, see, now I definitely gotta get you it. gotta that, see it. Yeah, I definitely gotta get it now. It's kind of a, almost like a look into what his career could have been like if he was born about mm-hmm. ten years earlier when the drive-in and the grindhouse circuit was still vital. Because this came at the very end of that cycle. Mm-hmm. It's very silly. It's not very violent. It's primarily just a goofy, lowbrow comedy. But it has a lot of charm. It's something that I think most people don't even know about. 
This is the first I'm hearing of. You know how I found out about it? When we were preparing for the Pam Greer episode, okay. I went on my Netflix and did a global search for Pam Greer movies to take a look at, has potential films to talk about in an episode. And that's where I came across it. I said, Pam Greer and Dennis Quaid I said, oh, I gotta see this. Mm-hmm. But then again, Dennis Quaid hasn't made so many mm-hmm. movies. What, he's made about like a hundred movies. Well, I would count it up, but let's just say I'm looking at the list here. It's a lot. So, And that's not even counting things like one of my... F- favorite, really obscure Dennis Quaid performances. Do you remember a show called The Big Show? Mm, No. When Lorne Michaels left Saturday Night Live for a while, he tried to do a Friday night primetime sketch comedy show called The Big Show, Mm -hmm. which lasted about ten weeks, Mm. I want to say. On Friday nights. On Friday nights. It featured a small ensemble cast. Dave Thomas was one of the, the members of the cast. All right. And they would have a primary guest host and two secondary guests. And they would do sketches and such, just mm-hmm. like Saturday Night Live, only without a lot of the charm and the edginess. Actually, though, the, I would have to say that the first episode of The Big Show is actually very, very funny with uh, Jeff Goldblum and Steve Martin because it features the goofiest parody of 1984 I've ever seen, okay. including Big Brother's Disco. They had Dennis Quaid as a guest host one week with Randy as the secondary guest. One of the main sketches was him and Randy playing the inbred brothers, Mm -hmm. who wanted to talk to the naked lady. (laughs) We want to talk to the naked lady. The naked lady turns out to be Catherine O'Hara as a mother, Mm -hmm. yelling at the kids in the next room. Mm -hmm. She's like, well, you need a credit card. We watched them go through the whole process of getting credit. Well, you should buy something pay it in installments. Mm-hmm. So we see them, we want to buy this refrigerator. Okay, that'll be $100. How about we put it on credit? Okay. <laughs> it always ended with the two of them turning to the camera and shaking each other's hands uh-huh. with this big, goofy, good old boy shit-eating grins on. Well, that's what Dennis Quaid yeah. is known for. Well, that course. big, goofy, shitty, good old boy grin. That's irresistible. And this sketch was so funny that they had worked on the idea of Bringing those two characters to the screen. Really? Enough of that tangent. That's definitely a similar character to the character he was playing in this film. In fact, I almost wonder if it ever made it to New York. If it was made primarily for the southern and southwest regional section of the circuit. Yeah. Because it definitely has that sort of... A lot of our listeners are too young to remember this, but you and I are, right. that you had studios that made movies primarily for different regions of the what country. Was Earl Warren was his name? Mm-hmm. The one guy who was this billionaire mm-hmm. whose films never got out of the southern states. It never went past the Mason-Dixon line. They were yeah. made primarily for... Earl Ownsby, that's his Earl, name. Okay. Earl Ownsby, that was they his made yeah. a, They were movies that were made primarily for southern audiences. Right. And they never made it to New York or Los mm-hmm. Angeles. So as a consequence, there's a lot of movies that you never saw in New York because they stayed in the South and they made their money. That's definitely what I'm going to have to get. Yeah. That sounds good. So what's your first Oh, choice? well, my, well, we're going to go right into the breakout movie, the one that really made people sit up and notice him. The 1983 The Right Stuff, directed by Philip Kaufman. And this movie... For those of you who don't know, and if you don't know, I don't know why you don't know, is about the beginning of the American Space Program, based on the novel by Tom Wolfe. It's about the original seven Mercury 7 astronauts, mm-hmm. that's what they were called. Gordo Cooper, who is played by our friend Dennis Quaid, right. Virgil, Gus Grissom, John Glenn, all of them. Yeah. This movie primarily is known for two things. 
The extraordinary cast, first of all, right. because you never got a cast like this again. It was Ed Harris, right? Scott Glenn, Sam Shepard. Sam Shepard. That made him powerful enough mm-hmm. to direct his own movies, yeah. based on his own play. Because he was a playwright right. before that. Uh, Fred, Fred Ward, Ward probably should be the subject of one of these things sometime soon. Yeah, uh, who was in Remo Williams, right. another one of our favorite movies. Veronica Cartwright, Pamela Reed, Scott Paulin, Barbara Hershey, Jeff Goldblum. It goes on and on. Lance Hendrickson. Mm-hmm. You never got a cast like this in a movie again. Now, everybody in this movie was outstanding in their own way. But the movie really took off when Dennis Quaid comes into the movie playing Gordo Cooper, who... Right. He proclaims himself best pilot in the world because he's always <laughs> telling, saying to his wife, "Who's the best pilot you ever saw?" And she says, "You are, honey. You are." When we come into the movie, it starts with Sam Shepard as Chuck Yeager breaking the sound barrier. Right. Once he breaks the sound barrier, you have all of these pilots descending upon this airfield that's in the American Southwest, where all of the test pilots are, because now everybody wants to jockey to be the best pilot. You have guys that go up and they go at Mach two and Mach three. But Chuck Yeager just goes right up the next day, and he breaks their record. When the space program gets underway, Washington sends their guys. They send Jeff Goldblum and Dan Castellani. Castellani. They send them to scout out the pilots at this airfield. They don't want Chuck Yeager because Mm -hmm. he's He's not college educated. He's not college educated. The guy says, well, don't you want our best pilot? Yeah, we want the best pilot we got. Well, Chuck Yeager is the best guy we got. Gordo Cooper sees this as his chance to get... In there, so him and his best buddy, played by Fred Ward, right. <laughs> Gus Grissom, along with Scott Glenn, Ed Harris, and a bunch of others, get into the space program. We follow them through the rest of the movie as they go through the exhaustive training, their infidelities, their triumphs, their sacrifices, as they all jockey to be the first man into space. Right. Dennis Quaid, first of all, he's a great team player. Mm-hmm. Because you can see that in this movie, he works very well with just about everybody in this movie. There isn't a scene where I didn't believe, okay, like the relationship between him and Fred Ward character. I honestly believe they were best buddies. Every time you see them, they always got that warm camaraderie. He has this terrific scene where he's in this test capsule, and they keep them in there in isolation for as long as possible. So they've got him in one capsule, and they've got another astronaut in another capsule. And the guy is gradually freaking out, freaking out. And you cut back, and every time you see it, the Dennis Quaid character is sleeping. He's in, and at one point, he's even softly snoring. And you wonder if he's really asleep or if he's just fucking with the other guy. Because right. you know? the other guy's like freaking out. But in the meantime, he's having problems with his wife, of course. His wife has seen other astronauts and other pilots get killed. And, of course, she doesn't want to deal with that, mm-hmm. which, which none of the wives do. And I was amazed. I watched a show with Philip Kaufman the other right. night. This movie really didn't do that good when it came out, even though they thought Kaufman that... Kaufman is, is notorious, it seems like, for putting out these movies that, ten years later, people think are really great, but bomb when they first Well, the released. right stuff now is considered a classic. Yeah, but I he mean, also did that remake of The Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Yeah. That everybody now thinks is a great classic. Yeah, exactly. When these movies come out at the time, they're not appreciated. But further on down the road, ten years down the road. Mm-hmm. But getting back to Dennis Quaid, you can see why... This was his breakout role because he has such enthusiasm, he has such charm, he has such charisma. He fits the period because, of course, this is set during the 50s and 60s. You ever see how some actors 
they play in a, a period piece, and they look like they don't belong right. at all. But he looks like a 50s guy. He's got like the crew Which cut. Which is something yeah. I think we're going to see in several of the films that we are going to be talking about today. He's got the crew cut. He's wearing the button-up shirt and everything like that. He looks like a 50s guy. Mm. This is a absolutely wonderful song. The soundtrack is outstanding. By one Bill Conti. One of the best soundtracks I've ever heard. Just for you comic book fans, this has the four actors in here. That if I was going to make a Challenges of the Unknown movie, <laughs> it's got the four actors right. in here. It's got Scott Glenn right. as Prof Haley, uh, Dennis Quaid as Red Ryan, Ed Harris as Ace, and Fred Ward as Rocky Davis. Okay. So every time I see this, I said, damn, why didn't somebody have $10 million to make the Challenges of the Unknown movie <laughs> then when they was in young and in shape? But folks, if you haven't seen it already, go get the right stuff. Not just for that wonderful Dennis Quaid performance, which of course is notable, but all the other performances as well. There's nothing wrong with this movie as far as I'm concerned. Right. It's as close to a perfect movie as you're going to get. Okay. And now let me throw it back to my partner. Well, I'm going to talk about one that may not be one of his greatest films, but is fairly interesting. This is uh, 1989's Great Balls of Fire, which was the second collaboration he did with director Jim McBride. Okay. Uh, Jim McBride was responsible for another one of those major landmark films in his career, which was The Big Easy, yeah. with uh, Ellen Barkin, Ellen Barkin, which yeah. is, if you haven't seen it, an excellent crime thriller. It's probably one of the few times Dennis is allowed to be oh. used one of his natural accents, because he is part Cajun. And obviously, they wanted to keep working together, mm -hmm. since their first collaboration was so successful. This is a rather curious film, and it felt like a giant stone. Mm -hmm. When it was released in the 89. I saw it in the theaters. The I didn't I, see it until years later. I think it was on yeah. HBO or Showtime I saw it. It is a biography, supposedly based on his wife, Myra Lewis's tell-all book called Great Balls of Fire. But it's a biography of one of the seminal figures in early rock and roll, Jerry Lee Lewis. I've always said that if Elvis's music was the promise of sex in a steamy southern afternoon, Jerry Lee Lewis's music was the actual act. I hope Little Richard never hears this. <laughs> If, if, if he does, I'm blaming you, man. <laughs> all right. I'm just saying, is all. I'm just saying. Quaid Stars has Jerry Lee Lewis. He had the actual killer on set so that he was observing him and actually trying to do his best to mimic Lewis's larger-than-life persona. Yeah, he was a consultant on the movie. Which is, I think, part of the reason why the film is not an entire success. Because if you've ever read Myra Lewis's book, it's a grudge book. It's, it's Myra Lewis saying all the horrible things that happened to her, starting with, of course, being gang-pressed into getting married at the age of 13. Starting, of course, when she married her. But because Jerry Lee Lewis is, was alive at the time, and still is alive, and probably cursing somebody else out right this second, they had to kind of sugarcoat things a bit. And the way McBride approached this was by trying to make Great Balls of Fire in the style of a biopic movie made during the period that this film covers. Right. Which is roughly about from 1954 to about 1959. So what happens is you've got this whole, what to 1989 audiences was strange, but for people like you and me who grew up on the Million Dollar Movie and stuff, we were familiar with this yeah. sort of film language where you have swipes and pans and yeah. split screens and various old style cutting. It's a whole film language that you just don't see. You just don't yeah. see it anymore because you know what? Audiences don't have the patience And for there it. was also this kind of weird choice to almost write it like a musical comedy, which made the scenes of him practically raping her mm. on their wedding night or beating her just before she announces she's pregnant, seem kind of weird. Okay. 
It's great music, obviously. Oh, yeah, well. Say um, what you want about yeah. Jerry Lee Lewis. The man can play yeah. music. Well, man you and I always talked about, I feel that it is kind of possible to condemn the person's personal life while still appreciating the music. Oh, yeah. I know people that say, oh, well, I can't listen to his music because he said this and he said that. Right. Yeah, well, you know, but you like the guy's music. Yeah. You can listen to his music right. because you're never going to meet the guy. Mm-hmm. You're never going to have anything to deal with him. So that's everybody's personal choice. I'm able to do that. I can separate, unless if somebody does something completely horrendous. Yeah. But back then, the whole thought of marrying your 13-year-old cousin, let's face it, people was doing it all the time. Right. At one point, he points out to... His cousin, who is played by ex-guitarist John Doe, mm-hmm. the band X, not that he was an ex-guitarist, that Jerry Lee Lewis's sister got married at 12. And for our female listeners, before you start sending us angry emails talking about we're approving this type of thing, we're not. We're putting right. it in its historical context. Right. These things did happen back mm-hmm. then, and they were accepted. Well, what I think makes the film work to the extent that it does, first off, is that Quaid gives a tremendous performance. Mm-hmm. And a person who gives an even better performance is Winona Ryder, as okay. Myron Lee Lewis, who was, at that time, just barely 18. So she still credibly could pass herself off as yeah. being junior high schooler. Mm-hmm. The only time that I think that Quaid's performance falters is during the performances because I think he tries to oversell Jerry Lee Lewis's distinctive performance style. They wisely chose for his backup band people who were actors but who were also former musicians themselves. In addition to John Doe, Mojo Nixon. I don't okay. know if you're familiar with... Um, I've heard the name. I've never heard his music. He's perhaps famous it. for the novelty hit Elvis is Everywhere. He plays his drummer in the film. There's a lot of other great supporting characters. The late, great, and I'm going to call this man a great, great man no matter what you think. Trey Wilson plays Sam Phillips. Oh, yeah, Trey Wilson, okay. Trey Williams plays Sam Phillips. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was his last role before he died. Because mm-hmm. he was on a, a trip to meet with the Coen brothers for this film where they wrote a special part for him called Miller's Crossing. Right. When he unfortunately passed away. Because uh, he was in Raising Arizona. Steve Tobolonsky plays Sam Phillips' brother. Mm-hmm. Joe Bob Briggs, okay. one of my uh, old friends, plays the disc jockey mm-hmm. in Memphis, Tennessee. I think that what interferes with the film is the this old school language. Mm-hmm. Which I think people just look at it and go like, what the fuck is this? It's a whole film language that you just don't see anymore. So you might be oh, off. And I forgot to mention probably one of the most interesting, and this is considering how big this actor was at the time. The fact that he was accepting such a small supporting role, Alec Baldwin playing Jimmy Swaggart. Now that's interesting. And it's a very small, I'm surprised at how small the role was, considering and around 1989, Alec Baldwin was at the height of his power. I know what you mean, because just the other day I was watching broadcast news for the first time. Mm-hmm. I never even knew Jack Nicholson was in it. And he's only in it for yeah. like five, seven minutes. Took no money and he took no credit. But I think sometimes guys just do that, you just for yeah. the fun of it. The other major weakness was that they tried to rush his downward spiral mm-hmm. in the course of seven minutes at the very end of the film. Once again, trying to candy coat, kind of gloss over all the abuse mm-hmm. and all the, the alcoholism and the, the cheating and all that that he did after that first decline of his oh, career. Okay. I think that a lot of times, that's why when they do a biopic like this, mm-hmm. I think that's why they wait till the person dies and then they do it. So yeah. they won't be on set telling what you can't tell them that. Point. Right. Which is, I'm sure, what happened. Like, I'm oh, sorry, yeah. I won't allow you to say that. Listen, I'm sure it did. It's not a great film. I don't want to say that it's a great film, but it's an interesting one. Okay. Your next Back story? to me, yes. And I'm going to go to 1985 and the science fiction movie Enemy Mine. 
which was directed by Wolfgang Peterson, mm -hmm. who is one of my favorite directors. I love this guy. He, but Wolfgang Peterson directed another science fiction movie. Well, we can look it up in just a second. Yeah, we can just look at it right because, now. Because, of course, we have Wonderbox has our own person. Let's take a look. Wolfgang Peterson. Well, of course, his, his first film was Das Boot. Right. In the Line of Fire, Outbreak, Air Force One, okay. The Perfect Storm, Okay. Troy... The never-ending story. That's probably what I'm thinking of. And coming out this year, Ender's Game. Which has been rumored for, what, like 20 years now? Yeah. coming out? Uh, enemy Mind, this one was based on the story by Barry B. Longyear. Yep. And, and in fact, the screenplay was written by Longyear. Okay, then. Whatever happened to him, anyway? I'm sure he's around somewhere. Well, this movie is set in the year 2092, and it concerns... A war that's going on between the human race and a reptilian race called the Drax. Mm -hmm. There's various star systems that are in dispute. The Drax say, well, we was here first. And the humans say, well, we was here first. And they're just blowing each other out of the stars with their starships. During a dogfight, Dennis Quaid's character follows this Drax ship into the atmosphere of this hostile planet. And they both crash. Both pilots survive the crash. Instead of killing each other, which they do try to do at right. first, then they realize that there's no help coming for them. They spend a period of time on this little cat and mouse game. It's like the old World War right. II thing where it's one American soldier and one Japanese soldier that's on an island together. Mm -hmm. So they have to learn to work together if for no other reason than to survive because there's these hellishly awesome meteor storms that right. hit the planet every once in a while. There's these hostile monsters that live in these pits that come right up from above and grab you and suck you up under the mm -hmm. earth. So, so it's not a vacation spot. No, it's not a vacation spot by any stretch of the imagination. Gradually, they learn each other's language. They come to some kind of accord. They learn how to work together in some kind of fashion while gradually learning about each other's culture and each other as a person. I should mention that the actor who plays the Drac is the great Lou Gossett Jr., right. who looks absolutely convincing in the makeup, the awesome makeup right. that goes on. Except the only thing is, is that he chooses to use his voice that sounds like he's gargling with a gob of snot. <laughs> that sounds really <laughs> disgusting. After a while, it gets on your nerve. Man, Hulk can spit already. You know? yes. Now, the plot gets complicated. Because the Lewis Gossett character, what happens is that Dennis Quaid's character decides to go off and try to find some help. Right. Because he said, listen, if we stay here, we're either going to kill each other or we're going to die. So he goes off and he does find people, but it's not the people that they want to mm -hmm. find. Because right. they're scavengers who enslave Drax mm -hmm. and use them as slave labor to mine planets. And when he gets back, he finds that the Drac is pregnant right. <laughs> because they're a hermaphroditic race. Mm -hmm. He said, what the hell you did that for? He <laughs> said, well, I didn't have a choice. I'm not human. Right. It's a thing that's biologically triggered. He helps him through his difficult pregnancy since he knows that he's not going to make it because he's getting sicker and weaker and sicker and weaker. So he has to teach the Dennis Quaid character his lineage because... It's a tradition. It's a tradition, and if his son is going to be accepted by the drag race, he has to go to like the special place and recite the entire lineage. Mm -hmm. The drag dies, but the son is born. As any of us do, I don't care what the kid is or what their race is, you're born with it. Right. Which is what happens with Dennis Quaid and this drag baby. He calls, it's so cute, he calls him uncle. 
<laughs> through another series of circumstances, the slavers capture the little kid because he's curious. He's never seen other any other humans, any mm-hmm. other drags. And even though Dennis Quaid says, listen, don't go over that side of the mountain right. because they're over there and they're not good people. He gets captured. He's fortunately picked up by his people. And he's taken back. Since he's been gone for three years now, they think he's been working with the Drax right. because he's, now he speaks Drax and he does mm-hmm. it while he's unconscious. So when he gets his strength back, he determines to go back and rescue the kid, right. which takes us into the last half hour of the movie, which is all action adventure, mm-hmm. considering that for most of the movie, it's really a character piece. You get a little right. bit of action at the beginning where we have the dog fight in space where they get shot down and they're on the planet. Mm-hmm. Then it's a big, long chunk of the movie where it's nothing but Dennis Quaid and Lewis Gossip talking to each other. Right. And then it's at Robinson the last... Crusoe almost. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. It's Robinson Crusoe. And then you get a big chunk of action adventure at the last half hour. That's why I recommend this movie, because it's a good showcase for Dennis Quaid's talent, because right. it's mostly him. Well, as we have Gossett. said many times on this thing, when you have to carry a film by yourself, it's not easy. You have to be a really good actor. Right, exactly. Even after Lewis Gossip dies... There's another stretch where it's just him by himself taking care of the kid until the kid gets old enough to talk. So a lot of the movie rests on his back, and he carries it off admirably. You can see that he's going gradually nuts under Mm -hmm. the strain of living on this planet where his meteor's falling on his head, and the only person he's got to talk to is an enemy that he hates and detests, but that he gradually grows to love and consider to be his brother. It's really, really a great movie. And I think that even though it was made in 1985, it still holds up very well. The special effects and the uh, story. I think that a lot of people that are into the CGI and got to have explosions every five minutes, I think they're going to look at this and they're going to find it slow moving and they're going to find it too talky. But if you got any patience and if you like a story with good solid characterization and really has got something to say, if you stick with it, you're going to enjoy this one. Okay. And definitely if you like Dennis Quaid, you're going to like this. So Enemy Mind, it's a movie that's in my collection, and I pull it out every once in a while to check it out. My final choice okay. is one that you and I have talked about quite extensively. Oh, yeah. And that I think that we have name-checked a couple of times on this show, which is Frequency from 2000. It's not only one of our favorite Dennis Quaid films, it's one of our favorite time travel yeah. films, period. It was written by the otherwise detestable Toby Emmerich. Which I was really surprised that he yeah. wrote that. Because <laughs> this is nothing like the typical Emmerich film. He was on this a good day. Good which day. Which I guess goes to prove that eventually the Thousand Monkeys do eventually produce Hamlet. Or that everybody's yeah. got at least one good story in them. It stars Dennis Quaid and Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, uh, Jim Caviezel <laughs> has Frank and John Sullivan. Frank Sullivan is a fireman who dies. In a fire in 1968, if I remember correctly. They make a big deal about the fact that it's during the first Mets World Series. Right. Because that's a major uh, major plot plot point point. in the film. However, Frank's son has never quite gotten over it. John has become a cop. He's morose. He is drifting from relationship to relationship. In fact, the first time we see John in the film, Mm -hmm. as an adult... His latest girlfriend is walking out on him. Are there any happy cops in movies besides Roger Murtaugh? I have no idea. (laughs) He's the only happy cop I've ever seen in a movie with a stable marriage and relationship. Frank was a ham radio enthusiast, and he's kind of passed that love on to John. And there are these Aurora Borealises that are breaking out all over New York Mm -hmm. in the year 2000. 
where the main part of the story takes place, Mm -hmm. through some bizarre science-fictional magic caused by these Borealises, John is able to communicate with his father. Back in 1968. Yes, back in 1968. And the first time he he thinks this is a joke, he's like screaming at this guy. And when they finally accept this, the first thing John does is warn Frank against that fire. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Says, no, look, you're going to go down this way. Don't go down this way. There was another exit right here. Mm -hmm. Go down there and you're safe. Frank takes his advice and is saved. However, that creates another chain, a ripple effect, another chain of events. Because if Frank had not died, then his wife, who is a nurse, would have worked in the OR Mm -hmm. where a serial killer who has been killing nurses Mm -hmm. in 1968 would have found her. Which goes back to the great time travel tradition that if yes. you change one thing, Dang. something else gets fucked up. <laughs> and in fact, it ends up that John's life is even worse. He still doesn't have his father because his father dies of lung cancer. Of lung, yeah. <laughs> uh, because he's smoking in the beginning of the film. And that's like his next thing. It's like, just give up the damn cigarettes. <laughs> his life is even worse. He's never even met this woman that, that was his last girlfriend. Because he's, he's just a creep that keeps to himself. and Nobody really likes him. Mm-hmm. Together, though, while they're still able to communicate by the ham radio, the two collaborate across time. To solve this case, yeah. Not only is it a time travel film, but it's this excellent, excellent little mystery. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, the most important thing about it is it's a relationship drama. Right. Ask the question. Bonding. What would could you say to a dead relative if you had the chance? Quaid is wonderful. Oh, he's magnificent. Caviezel is wonderful. Both of them are just tremendous in this movie. Andre Brauger has a great part, and he kind of fans both. Yeah, right, because, because he knows the father and, he knows the, the, father father and, and the son. son. He's the son's boss in the modern day segments, and he's a peer of Frank in the mm-hmm. 58 version. And as we mentioned, the Mets play a major part in the film. <laughs> because it's not for nothing that they set this during the 68 World Series, the Miracle Mets World Series. It but didn't it, do too well. No, it didn't. I was surprised. Me and my wife saw it, and we both loved it. We thought it was a terrific movie. Both Quaid and Caviezel, they never let it in there. Even though, given the extraordinary premise, somehow they sell it. You're convinced that this weird Morales thingy is mm-hmm. able to let them talk across time. I will admit that the last act gets really kind of hazy with the science fictional element. One of the, the subtle things that they kind of work in in the movie is that when you change something on one end of the thing, it kind of alters things subtly in terms of visually on the other end. And in the last one, you have... The Nightingale Killer, at the same moment in time, so to speak, mm-hmm. confronting both the father and, and the, the son. son. Right. The father shoots off his hand, and in the modern day, the guy's hand just disappears. Yeah. Yeah, you kind of close one eye when yeah. you see it, and you say, well, wait a minute. No, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> Supposedly, Rennie Harlan was supposed to direct the film before really? Gregory Hoblet took over. Okay. But this is, it's a really, really, really good film. Oh, and yeah. And it's one of these things that got lost in the shuffle. I think far too often the critics criticized it for being a crime drama. And it, that was You're right. a secondary thing to the fact that it was about this father and son. Having this rare time to reconnect mm-hmm. long after the father had died. And one of the other fun things I like about it is that anytime you have a time travel movie, you can't resist having these things where people tell people, or when they go to the past, and they tell mm-hmm. them like these little things, and this Jim Caviezel is able to tell one of his friends when he's a oh, little yeah. kid. He said... Don't forget this word, Yahoo. Which right. means one of the best gags in the movie. <laughs> one of the major <laughs> developments in the film revolves around John telling Frank about 
the the shoe polish play because mm-hmm. it's that thing that convinces Browager to believe. Yeah, in the past. yeah. So that's one of the little things that I like about time travel thing when you can do that. So it's a wonderful movie. I love it. So is it back on it's me? It's back now? to you now. All right. For my last movie, I'm going to go with something a little bit unusual. It's the 2002, directed by Todd Haynes. Mm-hmm. It's a movie called Far From Heaven. Stars, of course, Dennis Quaid, Julianna Morse. Dennis Haysbert, mm-hmm. who has turned into one of my favorite actors. I didn't notice him for a long time, but he was on 24. Right. I just recently saw him in Navy Seals, mm-hmm. which I didn't know he was in. It's a movie that's set during the 1950s. It's a loose remake of a movie directed by Douglas Sirk. called All That Heaven Allowed. It documents the disintegration of a suburban family. It basically pulls the coat off of the supposedly happy, contented lives of these suburban people. Julianne Moore plays a housewife. She's got supposedly the perfect American family, Mm -hmm. the perfect American life, until she starts having this relationship with this black gardener, played by Dennis Haysbert. Mm-hmm. She meets him one day and, yo, how you doing, blah, blah, blah. Totally innocent relationship. But, however, people in their little town take it and they take it the wrong way. Right. And they start whispering and her son says, you know, why don't you stop talking to that nigger and blah, blah, blah. She said, I won't have that talk in my house. He's just a friend of mine. One of her best friends starts putting in these little subtle accusations. Right. Getting to the Dennis Quaid character, while this is going on, now you may be asking, well, where's the husband at in all this? Right. He's going through his little thing because he's fighting with his subconscious homosexual urges, which he's been having for the longest time, and he's successfully hidden from his wife. Every once in a while, we get hints that he indulges in them, as in one critical point in the movie where he goes to a gay bar. The performance of Dennis Quaid in this one, what I like about it, it's very subtle. It's a very dialed-down Dennis Quaid that we don't see. He very rarely raises his voice. But I guess that's because of the whole 1950s thing. I should mention that this movie is done in a 1950s style. If you've ever seen the movie's Imitation of Life or the original or All That Heaven Allows, which was directed by Douglas Sirk, who specialized in these type of tear These kind of issue movies. Yeah, yeah, issue movies. He did a terrific one with James Mason, where James Mason plays a guy who gradually goes insane because he's taking cortisone. Right. <laughs> you ever want to see something really bizarre? <laughs> see a movie where James Mason is going insane. Right. But gradually... This drama plays out on this backdrop of this thing. And it's a lush, technicolor-looking movie, which I think a lot of people will look at it and they say, well, why are the colors so bright? Why is everything so... Uh, well, that's... Which also ties back into Great Balls of Fire, a similar sort of situation. A lot of people might find the melodrama over the top, mm-hmm. but I didn't. I thought the acting was excellent. I thought Dennis Quaid was really good as this man dealing with this issue. Because you got to remember, this movie is set in the 1950s, where homosexuality was considered to be an aberrant disease. In one point in the movie, he goes to a psychologist, but it's not working, so then he becomes an alcoholic. (laughs) They didn't take homosexuality out of the psychiatric handbook of mental illness until like 1975 or something? Something like that. It was considered something that had to be cured. So he plays a man that's really desperately trying to struggle because he's got a family, he's got a wife, he's got a successful career, he's, he's an advertising executive in Manhattan. If he comes out with his homosexuality, he's going to lose all of this. So he's wrestling with the dilemma, do I want to live my life the way I want to live it or do I want to go back with my wife and children and be unhappy for the rest of my life? While that's going on, of course, the relationship 
between his wife and the gardener is going on, which is totally innocent. There's nothing wrong with right. it. She's just connected. You get the feeling that if they had met in another life, something would have happened. But the both of them know that in this time and place, this just ain't going to happen. Right. But they are trying to connect on some kind of intellectual and emotional level. It's a wonderful movie. I recommend, if you're in the mood for a good melodrama, I'd highly recommend it. Something I do want to point out about this film is that the score Mm -hmm. is by Elmer Bernstein. During my research, I found out he had to go back and listen to his scores that he did at that Mm -hmm. time period. Because he did this score in the style of the same 1950s period. But he had to go back and listen to what he did back then to get back into that mode. Mm -hmm. Of music because they don't score movies like that right. anymore. They just don't. It's just a way. It's well, just yeah. A now, at this point, now a soundtrack is a collection of songs that people want to promote. I want to read off. Check this out. Over seventy-one awards. Yeah. This film won. Yeah. Chicago Film Critics Award Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor for Dennis Quaid. Golden Globes nominations, Independent Spirits Awards, Best Feature, Best Actress, Best Supporting Actor, National Board of Review, Best Actress. A lot of people love this film. New York Film Critics Circle Award, Best Film, Best Director, Best Supporting Actor, Best Supporting Actress for uh, Patricia Clarkson, who we didn't mention. Uh, She plays the best friend Mm -hmm. of who I mentioned before, who throws in a little snarky comment. She has a part in the movie, a great part, where she does confront her friend finally about her relationship with this black gardener and kind of lays it on the line like, listen, you need to cut this shit out because if you don't, we're going to cut you off. I mean, I don't want to spoil it because it's a great scene and you should see it for yourself. You should see the whole movie, really. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie. If you're in the mood for a good melodrama, a good, what they used to call a a three-hanky tearjerker, this is for you. If you're a guy and you want to impress your girlfriend, (laughs) I'm serious. Rent this movie. If, mm-hmm. you, if you're if you married already, well then, right. <laughs> you don't have to. But if you want to impress your girl with how sensitive you are, rent this movie on a Friday or Saturday night. Okay, so to review, my choices for this uh, celebration of Dennis Quaid mm-hmm. were 1983's Tough Man comedy slash drama Tough Enough, the biopic of Jerry Lee Lewis, Great Balls of Fire, Okay, and finally, the excellent... Time travel slash crime drama slash relationship drama, frequency. That was a good way to sum it up. And my three was 1983's The Right Stuff, directed by Philip Kaufman. The movie which is primarily about the beginning of the American space race and the whole NASA program. With that wonderful Dennis Quaid performance. 1985's Enemy Mind, directed by Wolfgang Peterson, which co-stars Lou Gossett Jr., and has him and Dennis Quaid as two adversaries on a hostile planet trying to stay alive. And 2002's Far From Heaven, directed by Todd Haynes, which is a 1950s tearjerker with Dennis Quaid as a closeted homosexual business executive struggling with trying to keep his family together while dealing with his own issues. So, I guess it's time for the administrative. Yeah. So, if you want to get in touch with us, Tell us what your favorite Dennis Quaid movies are, or say, why the heck did you just spend an hour talking about Dennis Quaid? <laughs> there are a number of ways you can contact us. One is, of course, to drop us an email at betterinthedark at gmail.com. That's better, the letter N, the dark, at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. You can leave a message on our Potomatic page, which is at betterinthedark.potomatic.com. You can go on Podcast Alley or iTunes or something and write a review. 
Yeah, that'd be good. That'd be cool because that people will notice. Or you can, of course, join our mailing list at yahoo.movies.com backslash groups backslash better in the dark. I'm sure there are other things, hopefully. We're still working on trying to get a message board up because I know there are some people who would feel more comfortable just doing the message board thing. Yeah, some people have told me that in private communications yeah. that they like to see a message board. So okay. that's something we could start We will work. We're going to work on that. Okay. Let us know what you think. We do read every email ourselves. We do respond uh, either on the show or privately. We did recently did a show where we did we nothing did almost but no, well we did yeah almost nothing but email the episode yeah. that is preceding this one the first half hour is just us talking with emails so go check out some Dennis Quaid films in celebration of his birthday I don't know I'm looking there's a whole lot of other things he's not stopping anytime soon it seems. Yeah, I mean, you can go on the Internet Movie Database and get a whole list of his movies. What we've given you here, hopefully, is a good cross-section right. of his work for you to start with if you have it. Uh, one other movie that I'd like to throw in real quick yeah. that we didn't cover, the Wired Up movie where he yeah. played Doc Holliday. But that, Which kind of got clips by Tombstone. By Tombstone, yeah, yeah. Tombstone is the more fun movie, but Wired Up is okay. I like Wired Up, but it's not Tombstone. Right. <laughs> Until next time, this has been Derek Ferguson and, and your Tom DJ. <laughs> last I checked, <laughs> reminding you whatever you do, no matter where you go, no matter whether you love it, like it, hate it, or indifferent to it, go, go see, see that, that movie. movie. Good night. Good night, all. Look at old Jaeger. On top of the pyramid for five goddamn years. Every time somebody goes faster, he just goes up again. You've been listening to Better in the Dark, featuring Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Special thanks go out to the crew at Podcrawlers, Brian Ibbett of Coverville, Chris and Jen of the Amazing Spidercast, and the members of the Better in the Dark Yahoo group at movies.groups.yahoo.com backslash group backslash Better in the Dark. Better in the Dark would like to talk to the naked lady, but neither Patricia or Aaron would approve. Previous episodes for the show can be downloaded from betterinthedark.podomatic.com. Send all comments, praise, hate mail, and pipe bombs to betterinthedark at gmail.com. That's better, the letter N, the dark at gmail.com. Please vote for us on Podcast Alley. Better in the Dark is a Conspiracy Productions presentation. All material copyright, Thomas E.J. and Derek Ferguson. Until next time, remember that just because the state says you can marry your 13-year-old cousin doesn't mean it's a good idea. I love you, son. I love you too, Dad.